If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 12? 1 Kings chapter 12. So it's almost summer, and this is really my last sermon before the Elders series. So here's what I thought. Since it's so hot outside and it's summer, I thought we'd jump in the deep end this week. All right, can we just do that? All right, so it's, it's, it's on, we're in the deep end, but we're only going to be able to look kind of at the top of the water. So it's going to be fine, but we're in the deep end. So I'm just, I'm fair, fair warning, all right? 1 Kings chapter 12, we're, this is immediately following Solomon's death. His son Rehoboam becomes the king, beginning in verse 1, read through verse 24. It says, Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was still in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt. And they sent and called him, and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. He said to them, go away for three days, then come again to see me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon, his father, while he was yet alive, saying, how do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, if you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. But he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, what do you advise me that, advise that we answer this people who have said to me, lighten the yoke that our father has put on us? And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, thus shall you speak to this people who said to you, your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus shall you say to them, my little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day as the king said, Come to me again the third day. And the king answered the people harshly, forsaking the counsel that the old men had given him. He spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people. For it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. And when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to, him, to them, the people answered the king, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the sons of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, look now to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents. But Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. And then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was taskmaster, over the forced labor. And Israel stoned him to death with stones. And King Rehoboam hurried to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel had, has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. And when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. There was none that followed the house of David but the tribe of Judah only. When Rehoboam came to Ju Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen warriors to fight against the house of Israel to restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. But the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God. Say to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people, thus says the Lord, you shall not go up or fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. Every man to his home, for this thing is from me. 
So they listened to the word of the Lord and went home again according to the word of the Lord. Let's pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, you have a word for us. You brought us here together today, united together. You allowed us to open and read the Bible. And it's because you want to speak to your people. You want to comfort your people. You want to convict sin. You want to remove burdens. You want to draw them into deeper fellowship with you. I have no ability to affect that kind of change in your people, oh God. But your son has been raised from the dead. Your spirit has been sent to dwell among your people. And your word has proven sufficient across the generations. And so, Lord, we look to you that you would bring that kind of change, that you would bring that kind of comfort, that kind of conviction, that kind of passion for your kingdom, through your word. Speak to us now, O Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. So we talk a lot about, as Christians, because of the promises that we have, we really have a good idea how this is all going to turn out, don't we? We kind of know how the story is. We don't kind of know. We, we do know. We know the victory of Christ. We know the promises that are there. But here's what we don't know. We don't exactly know how. We don't know exactly how these promises are going to be fulfilled in our lives. We don't know exactly how Christ is going to come and, and bring all things. And so we, we don't know how. We, we know what. We know what the end is, but we don't really know how. That is, we know that God has said that he's going, he's promised. He's going to raise up disciples from all the nations. He's going to save them so that they love Jesus and follow Jesus, so that they're my brother and sister and your brother and sister. But we don't know the means that God's going to use. We don't know who God's going to use. We don't know who he's going to send and how they're going to hear the message. We don't know how he, what, what they're going to hear or see that's going to draw them into fellowship. We don't know how the Spirit is going to work in their lives to convict them of sins. We don't know how. We know what, but we don't know how. We know that all things are going to work together for the good of the people that love God. But we don't know how. We, we don't know how our ALS is going to look forward to the kingdom of God. We don't know how disability is going to one day be made beautiful. We don't know how the affair that took place in our relationship is someday going to bring glory to the name of Christ. We don't know how the trauma of our childhood or the loss of our spouse is going to ultimately one day bring glory to Christ and be considered good by us and for us. We know what, but we don't know the specifics. We don't know how. In fact, it tells us, Jesus says in John chapter 6, that all who my Father give to me, I will not lose a single one. That in other words, those of us who are saved by grace are kept by grace. That he promises that his disciples will endure until the end. But we don't know how he's going to affect that. We don't know. I, I think growing up, I always thought it was just some feeling that you were always going to have and you were always going to feel like super saved and super close to God. But experience has taught me otherwise. Instead, I've come to realize that God works through the common means of grace. He works through people and circumstances and experiences. He works through highs and lows. He works through the preaching of his word and the singing of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. He, he works through a, a conversation with a stranger. He works through a conference that you attend. He works through a morning devotional or a time of prayer. He works through the little girl that he put in your back seat that asks you a question that all of a sudden just reminds you what this is all about again. We know that he's going to keep us. We know that he's going to make sure that our faith perseveres because we're not strong enough to do it. But we don't exactly know how. 
And embedded within that tension of we know what but not how is really an age-old tension. That tension between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. That is, on one hand, we as Christians are, are to believe that God reigns over everything. That God is, is in every detail. That, that nothing is beyond his, his providence. That nothing is beyond his plan. And in fact, the, the Bible uses words that we're very uncomfortable with, like predestination. But we come to those words and we think, well, then, do my decisions even matter? And then on the other side, the Bible is clear that our decisions do matter. Our our decisions are are really important in our faith, and our decisions are really important in the outcomes of our lives. But does that mean that God just reacts to us? That he actually doesn't know what's coming, and he doesn't know what's going to happen? We know what, but we don't know how. We don't know how these things reconcile with one another. And this is the exact tension that's happening in 1 Kings chapter 12. In chapter 11, you remember Solomon has all of the, the 700 wives and he builds all the altars to the false gods and, and God comes and he brings judgment against Solomon. And through the prophet, the prophet Ahijah, he comes to him and he says, I am going to tear away from you your kingdom. And in the same chapter, he goes to a man by the name of Jeroboam, who was, who was an industrious man, the Bible says, one of Solomon's most abled servants. But Solomon had seen Jeroboam as a rival, had banished him out to uh, Egypt because of the fear that he was going in some way incite an insurrection. And the Lord goes to, Je- to Jeroboam and he says, and he tears this new garment, which, you know, like you're th- thanks to the Lord, you know, for tearing that. But through the prophet Ahijah, he tears the garment and he tears it into 12 pieces and he gives him 10. He says, 10 of the Lord's tribes I'm going to give to you. And only the tribe of Judah will remain under the house of David. So here's the thing. We know it's going to happen. God has already said it's going to happen. God has assured both Solomon and Jeroboam on both sides of this conversation that the kingdom is about to split. The kingdom is about to divide. God has given forth his word. But we don't know how. How does it come about? How does God fulfill his word? And in fact, we see in the answer of this question, I think, how God fulfills his word in our lives as well. How we can begin not not to solve this tension, not to resolve this tension, because, I mean, my goodness, we're just not that smart. But at least how we can come to appreciate it. How we can come to to process it a little bit. Within this big question of, of how will the word of the Lord come to be fulfilled, how will the Lord take the kingdom from Rehoboam and give ten of the tribes over to Jeroboam, I think we see these four tense relationships in the course of the text that help us kind of get to the nature of this tension. So I want to explore these tense relationships. The first one I want us to see is that we see there are two new rivals. There are two new rivals. So the big question, remember, the question that we're trying to solve is how is Rehoboam going to lose the majority of his kingdom? How is that going to come about? We know it's coming. How does it come about? So when Rehoboam, we kind of catch up to him at his coronation, and he's being coronated at the city of Shechem. And I'm going to talk about Shechem here in just a bit. But it's an odd choice because the temple is in Jerusalem, and the capital of Judah is Jerusalem. And so here is... Here is Rehoboam, and he's seeking to be coronated as the son of David in the tribe of Judah in the city of Shechem, which is outside of Judah, not in Jerusalem. So that's kind of a hint. Something weird is going down here. And in the process of being coronated, a tension that's been bubbling up in the lives of Israel kind of comes to the forefront. And they elect a man, a man that we've already talked about, Jeroboam, who was a good man to go and to represent them before Rehoboam. And they want him to kind of go and to present to 
Rehoboam, kind of an ultimatum of sorts. So Jeroboam, he goes before, uh, and, and he's really a great choice. He was a labor leader for Solomon. So like, you can kind of get why they would identify him as being the right man for the job. And the Bible's already told us that he's a bright and industrious fellow. And so he goes before Rehoboam and says, here, this is the situation. Under Solomon, Solomon was always wanting to build things. He was building palaces and temples and city walls and gates. He was always wanting to have more and do better. And the people, the people have been overworked and underpaid for too long. It's been a burden to them. They felt like slave labor to their king. So, so Rehoboam, what we need is we need for you to be a king of reform. In fact, we're demanding that you be a king of reform. And if you will relieve, not all of the burden, they understand that there's some work to be done. But if you will relieve some of the burden of your father, if you will stop overworking us and underpaying us and putting us under this heavy yoke, then we will serve you all of our lives. But, of course, presented and implied is the other side, that if you want, we're going to revolt against you. If you want, we're going to demand that there is another king. We're going to demand that there is another way. Well, Rehoboam shows a bit of wisdom. And he says, okay, well, give me, give me three days. Let me consult with my counselors, and I'll get back with you in three days. And so the first group that he goes and he talks with, he talks with the old men. And by the way, I wish I could use that, and I think I'm going to start using that with our elders. I'm going to come back and say, I've talked with all the old men, and this is what they say. So, so he says he goes and he talks with the old men and it says that these were the men that were in Solomon's court. Now this seems like a good idea because Solomon, most prosperous king in the world, Solomon, the most revered wisdom in the world, seems like to me the guys in his court that have contributed to that wisdom would be a good source of information. So he goes to them and, and they give him advice and they say, if you, will sh- if you will serve the people, they will then serve you for the rest of their lives. In other words, king, if you will love your people... They will love you back. If you will show them kindness, they will show you loyalty and devotion. That's pretty good advice, isn't it? That's pretty good counsel. But it's a lot to take in when you're telling the king that he has to be the servant. He has to be the servant. He goes, okay, I'll take that and I'm going to go and balance. And then it says he goes to all of his classmates. It says that these are the the young men that he grew up with. I I don't have the whole text, but I do have uh, the response there. And it uses that same term, young men. And what's funny about it is when we think young men, we're thinking of, you know, like early 20s, like maybe in college, maybe just getting out of college or whatever. This is actually, the the author kind of giving us a wink here, this is actually really a negative term. This isn't the normal term that's used for a young man, a young virile man. This is the term that is often used for children. Megan says I need to slow down and write neither, so I'm, I'm working on that. That this, this word can actually mean baby. That, 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 that in other words, the, the, the narrator here of 1 Kings says that, okay, Rehoboam, he goes to the old men, and then he goes and he talks to the babies. And he says, all right, babies, what advice? Can, can you imagine me if I, we were making a big decision of our church? And I said, okay, I've heard what the elders say. I've heard what the deacons say. I've heard even what the, the older, wiser generation of the church says. Let me go and consult the nursery for a second. That's the picture. So he goes to them, and here's what they say. How dare those people give our king an ultimatum? Who do those little peasants think that they are? Here's what you do, Rehoboam. You go and you show them who's boss. You come down on them with an iron fist. You tell them, you think it's been heavy? You don't know anything yet. You think it's been hard? You don't know how hard it can be. You think you've been beaten with whips? We're going to beat you with scorpions. The scorpion was a type of whip that had metal barbs in the ends of it. 
so Rehoboam takes the council, and, and we're kind of left wondering how he's going to design, what he's going to decide. Because see, the decision that's before Rehoboam is the decision of what he's ultimately going to be, the decision-making reality of his rule, the decision-making reality of his kingdom. Is he going to be ruled by hubris or by humility? Is he going to be make, allow God's glory to be his decision-making making, maker? Or is he going to allow his ego to be his decision-maker? Will he be a shepherd king? I think this is the real question. Will he be a shepherd king in the way of David, who led shoulder-to-shoulder shoulder with his men in battle as the, as the young man who has to, used to have to pry the manure of lambs off of his feet? Or will he rule like a tyrant from on high in the ivory tower? The decision that he's really making is the decision whether he'll be wise or foolish. In fact, those old elders probably contributed to a, a proverb that he would have known very well, a proverb that the Bible tells us was contributed from the house of Solomon, from the words of Solomon, one that Rehoboam certainly would have been familiar with. Proverbs 16, 18 and 19, pride goes before destruction. A haughty spirit before a fall. It is better to be of lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. And so the decision, the decision that, that Rehoboam is ultimately being presented with, whether he perceives it or not, whether he realizes it or not, is whether or not his reign as king is going to rise or fall. Whether it's going to be stopped before it gets started good, or whether it can be prospered under the hand of the Lord. This decision between hubris and humility is the decision for Rehoboam between life and death. And brothers and sisters, that is the same decision that, focus, that faces us all of the time. What will be the decision-making reality of our lives? Will we make our decisions based upon what builds up our ego or what brings glory to God's name? Will we make our decisions based on hubris or humility? Will we try to seize the controls of our lives or will we submit them to the Lord? Think about the decisions that you make. Why are you in the relationship that you're in? Are you in that relationship because it makes you feel good? Are you in that relationship because it makes you feel strong or pretty or attractive or wanted or desired? There's nothing wrong with any of those things, but they can't be the decision maker alone. That can't be the decisive reason for the relationship. Or are you in that relationship because it is going to help you more clearly know God and manifest his glory to other people? Why is it that you want the graduate degree? Do you want the graduate degree because it, it raises your esteem in the eyes of your colleagues? Do you want the graduate degree because it, it makes you feel better to have something else to fill in on your resume? Do you want that, that uh, graduate degree because it, it allows you to, to be able to attain more of your selfish ambitions that you've established for yourself? Or do you want your graduate degree so that you can help more people, so that more people can, can see the glory of Christ through you, so that, so that you're able to be in a position to, to give more generously? Both of those can be reality. A graduate degree is morally neutral, but the decision-making behind it, that's the significance. What are you using to make the decision with? Why, why is it that you want the other job? Do you really want the other job because it enables you to help more people? It enables you to be in a position to be a greater resource? It puts you in a position of prominence so that you can influence for the kingdom of God? Or is it because it really just moves you closer to your lake house? Why do you want it? What is in the position of decision-making in your life? Is it your ego or is it the glory of God? That is the question that's facing Rehoboam, and that is the question that faces every single one of us. Well, look at Rehoboam comes and all the people on the third day, and on verse 13 it says, The king answered the people harshly. 
forsaking the counsel that the old men had given him. He spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. He chooses his bed. Rehoboam's king uh, rule will be defined by hubris. It will be defined by arrogance. And God opposes the proud. He stands against them and he will tear from Rehoboam his kingdom. Because before the pride, the proud will find destruction. So why is it, how is it that Rehoboam loses his kingdom? That's the question, remember? How is it that he loses all of these tribes? Because of the decisions that he makes. Because of his foolishness. Because of his pride, because of his arrogance, because he is ruled and dominated by a sense of hubris and ego. Let's look at the next tension. Not only are there two new rivals, but now there are two old enemies. So you have this new rivalry, right? You have the rivalry between Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And y'all, I know the names. I didn't come up with the names. It's confusing. Okay, Remember Rehoboam, son of Solomon, Jeroboam. Not the son of Solomon, servant of Solomon that was out, that was now representing the rest of Israel. But this is really fascinating to me, okay? So, so one of the ways, you know, we're in a series called The Big Story. And what, if you're, you're new to this, man, so glad you're joining in. But what we're seeing is that the Bible is not independent in its books. And it's not independent in its stories. It's one meta narrative. It's one story. Yeah, there's a lot of characters. There's a lot of moving parts. But there's really one story of God's redemption of all mankind that is being told from Genesis all the way to Revelation. It's all a single story. And there are times, there are times, and I love this, throughout the scripture, that these narrators, inspired by the Holy Spirit, kind of give us a wink to let us know that this story isn't a standalone story. That this isn't just some new thing that kind of burst onto the scene that he, by the vocabulary that's used and the language that's chosen, that certain hints and innuendos are given that you're able to make connections, that you're supposed to be able to do as, as an informed reader, as someone that knows the Bible and knows what's happening, that you can bridge these gaps in your brain so that it draws your heart toward the sovereignty of God, toward the glory of God, toward the majesty of God. And that is happening right here. Yes, this is a Johnny-come-lately conflict between Rehoboam and Jeroboam, that there's this, these two new rivalries, but these two new rivalries, they're really not so new. Let me explain to you what I mean. All right, so I want you to see if this sounds familiar to you. So what we have here is we have a king, and the people feel like they're being crushed under the weight of the burden. But that king, when given that ultimatum, then feels threatened by all of the people. And so the response of that king to the ultimatum, being threatened by that people, is not to take away the burden, but to add to the burden, to, to increase the yoke of labor that's upon them. So you have a king who basically is using the people of God as slave labor. The slaves begin to rise up against the king, threatening to make to overthrow him. The king then responds by saying, what I'll do is I'm not going to stop beating you with whips. I'm going to beat you with more whips. Not, and, and I think this word scorpion, I don't think that's, I think that's a pretty good hint here. I want you to think about that, okay? I'm not just going to beat you with whips. I'm going to beat you with words. I'm going to beat you with scorpions. I'm going to add to your burden. And then, then, what does it say? Verse 15. The king did not what? Listen. Did not listen. What's another way that's often used in the Bible to say that he did not listen? A hardened heart. So you have a king 
He's oppressing his people. The people begin to be a threat to him. He says the answer to that is I'm going to beat you with scorpions and then I'm going to add to your labor. And he hardens his heart and does not. Does that that ring a bell to y'all at all? Rejecting the wise counsel of Israel? Y'all, this is Pharaoh, man. This is Pharaoh 2.0. I just took a couple of the instances. If you look at chapter, Exodus chapter 1, verse 11, it says, Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with what? Heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. Chapter 9, th- this literal verse, 9, 12, comes up time and again throughout the first 12 or so chapters of Exodus. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. And what? He did not... Listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. So here we have, we have Pharaoh showing up again. This looks like a new story. This Rehoboam looks like a new character, but really he's not new at all. This is just Pharaoh 2.0. It keeps going, all right? Now, Moses comes and he confronts Pharaoh, remember? He comes up and he says, you know, God's, you're oppressing God's people. God demands that you let his people go. But do you remember where Moses started his life? He came out of where? Egypt, right? Do you remember whose house Moses lived in in Egypt? Lived in Pharaoh's house, right? This is what it says. As soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was still in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon. Then Jeroboam returned from Egypt. Do you know whose house Jeroboam lived in and found refuge in in Egypt? Pharaoh's house. Y'all. If you think this is an accident, I don't know how to help you, all right? I don't know how to help you. What we have here is the authors say, you think this is new. You think this is a new tension. You think this is a new conflict. This is not new. This is the same conflict that happened before. This is just Pharaoh and and Moses all over again between Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And here's how this helps us. It feels like the people of God are just hanging in the balance, dependent upon the decisions of these flaky men. What is Rehoboam going to do? What is Jeroboam going to do? Are they going to be ruled by hubris and humility? Are they going to choose to be a servant or to be served? Are they going to be a tyrant? Are they going to be a shepherd king? What's happening in all of this? But in the meantime, you have all of these people, millions and millions of people whose lives just seem to be hanging in the balance. And what's God doing? What's the author doing? It looks like all of this is contingent upon the decisions of a few aimless men. It feels like all of the future is dependent upon what these men will decide for millions of my people. But no, no, no. I delivered you out of Egypt and I will deliver you out from under the heinous rule of a hubris king. In other words, in other words, the message here is that the well-being of God's people is not contingent upon the decisions of others. The well-being of God's people is secured in his sovereign hand. And that is good news for me and you. That is good news for me and you. So many of you have experienced trauma at the hands of other people, by the decisions of other people. So so many of you, even in your life right now, you feel like your whole life is hanging in the balance while your supervisor determines what the future holds. Or you feel like your whole life hangs in the balance determined by what your mom and dad say to this decision or that decision. You feel like your whole life hangs in the balance depending upon whether or not your wife is going to come home tonight or not. And it feels like your fate is completely sealed according to the decisions of people who you have no control and no influence over. But that is not the case for the people of God. 
That is not the case. Your life is not determined by your wife or by your parents or by... Your life is being secured in the hands of a God who has controlled it all. A God who says, I delivered my people from Egypt. I delivered my people from Rehoboam. And I will deliver my people yet again. Now, we don't know all the details, but that we know for sure. You see, this isn't just a look back. This is a look forward. This is a look forward. Why is it that Jeroboam had to go and confront Rehoboam? It's because Moses' deliverance did not last. Moses came and he confronts Pharaoh, but it does not last. It does not stand. Eventually, God's people come under the oppression of a harsh king yet again. And so what does God do? God raises up another deliverer, doesn't he? God raises up another, another deliverer. He raises up Jeroboam and he says, now you're going to go and you're going to play the role of Moses again. But guess what? The, it's not going to last past the first week with Jeroboam. It ain't going to last long with him either. But you know what God's going to do? He's going to raise up another deliverer and another deliverer and another deliverer because they are pointing forward to an ultimate son of David, a greater Moses who is going to confront a greater Pharaoh and going to bring an ultimate deliverance of us unto the kingdom of God Forever. Forever. In fact, in fact, Jesus himself connects with this passage and with the Exodus passage explicitly. If you, if you ever get to study the book of Matthew in depth, what you'll learn is that the book of Matthew is really overlaid with the themes of Exodus throughout. And so I quote to you all the time Matthew chapter 11 because I think it is the single sweetest invitation in all of the Bible. But do you know what that Matthew invitation has in mind? It has in mind that yoke of oppression that Pharaoh placed over Israel. It has in mind that heavy hand of Rehoboam being laid over where he whips them with scorpions. And listen Listen to what Jesus, our true king, has to say. He says, come to me, all who what? Labor and are heavy laden. And I will add to, your, add to your burden? No. I will whip you with scorpions? No. I will give you rest. I will give you rest. The, the yoke that Pharaoh placed upon his people was heavier than the yoke they carried before. He was further burdening the people of God. The yoke Rehoboam places upon the people of God is heavier. He was further burdening the people of God. But what will our actual king do? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. Does that sound like a servant king to you? And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. You see, God is in charge of this story. That's the message here when we see Pharaoh and Moses showing up again. And that is because he is bringing about a deliverer, a king, who will not add to the burden of his people. Who insists, says, come to me with all of your burdens. Come to me with your greatest fears. Come to me with your greatest insecurities. Come to me with your inability to measure up to the law. Come to me with your greatest failures. Come to me with all of your filthy sh uh, sins. Come to me with all of your shame and all of your guilt and all of your mistakes and all of your shortcomings. Come to me with all the skeletons that are in your closet that are in the past that you don't want to look at. Come to me with all the trauma and the abuse that you've faced. Come to me with all the pressures and anxieties of motherhood. Come to me with all of the weight of the world that this this, this uh, society keeps placing up, come to me and I will not add to your burden. I will take the yoke upon myself and I will carry it for you. You see, how is it that Rehoboam lost his kingdom? He lost it because God planned it. Because God willed it. 
Because God designed it. Because God was pointing forward to a greater king. Another tense relationship. Two new rivals, two old enemies, and now two big brothers. I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to study the Clay County War, and I'm not talking about Clay County, Alabama. I'm talking about Clay County, Kentucky. It's really fascinating if you ever have the opportunity. It's one of the most famous or the most famous blood feud. Um, that's every, if you've ever thought Hatfield McCoy kind of stuff. So you have two families, the Bakers and the Whites, and over about a 100-year period, 150 people die in this feud. And what's interesting about the Clay County War is these two families that seemed to hate each other so much, they kept intermarrying with one another over the generations. So essentially, these two separate families kind of became one family. And so what's interesting is you have this feud, and really it's a feud of a family within itself. And that's a picture of what's happening. So it comes at the end. If you look in verse 16, and you have Israel, the, the people that are represented by Jeroboam, the other ten tribes, and they come and they say, when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, what portion do we have in David? Now this is significant. We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Jesse, remember, tribe of Judah, right? To your tents, O Israel. And when he's talking Israel here, he's not talking about all 12 tribes. He's talking about the tribes outside of Judah, okay? Look now to what? Your own house, David. House is significant. So Israel went to their tents, but Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was taskmaster, over the forced labor, and all Israel stoned him to death with stones. And King Rehoboam hurried to mount his chariot. By the way, what did Pharaoh ride? Y'all remember? Rode chariots, didn't he? Interesting. To flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. And when all Israel heard that Rehoboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. Right? Remember Israel, not all 12 tribes, just the initial 10. Then there was none that followed the house of David, but Judah only. Let me explain to you what's, what's happening here. There's a conflict between two houses. There's, there's a conflict between two old big brothers. The two most prominent tribes from over the course of Israel's history has been the tribe of Judah to the south and the tribe of Ephraim to the north. Okay, so between these two tribes, there's always been rivalry, there's always been conflict, there's always been tension. Like you can go back and you'll see this throughout the book of Judges. They've always kind of been at odds with each other. And then under David and Solomon alone, all the 12 tribes are consolidated. They're brought together. But then, when Solomon goes away, what you have is this old tension, this old sibling rivalry coming back to the top. Now, God had made a promise to David, and you remember what the promise was. The promise was, is I'm going to establish you as a house. I'm going to make you a dynasty. I'm going to establish a throne, and all the people of Israel are going to submit to your throne, and your throne is going to be established forever. And here, what we have is the, is the, the tribes of the north, those led by the tribe of Ephraim. And what they're saying is, is, maybe we'll go and start our own house. Maybe we'll go and we'll have our own king. Maybe we'll go and we'll have our own capital, Shechem. You know where Shechem is? Shechem is in Ephraim. Remember how I told you that was interesting that he chose that? Shechem is like the capital of Ephraim. And so what we experience right here is a schism, a fracture that happens between among the people of Israel. And if you don't understand that this happens, you literally can't understand or make sense of any of the rest of the Old Testament. 
throughout the Old Testament, going forward, there are two different kings, there are two different kingdoms, and there are two different places of worship. And do you know where the new Jerusalem to the north is? Shechem. Shechem. Now, the significance of Ephraim is, do you know what tribe Jeroboam comes from? Ephraim. Ephraim. And so here's the idea, is that, yeah, there is a house of Judah. Let them go and do whatever they want down south. But up here, up north, we're going to establish our own king. We're going to have our own house out of the house of Ephraim, and we'll let Jeroboam establish it from the start. Now, is this just the machinations of men? No. Just before this, in chapter 11, God makes a covenant with Jeroboam that is very representative of the covenant that he makes with David. And it's shocking. If you go back and read, listen to what he says. This is God talking to Jeroboam just in the previous chapter. If you will listen to all that I command you and walk in all my ways and do what is right in my eyes, keeping my statutes and my commandments as David my servant did, I will be with you. And I will build you what? A sure house, a dynasty, as I built for David. And I will give Israel to you. And I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. So God even comes to them and he says, look, you want your other king? You want your own king? You want to be your own people? I'm going to make a covenant with Jeroboam. That if he will follow me the way that David followed me, and he will love me the way that David loved me, that then I will be with him and I will establish in him a dynasty that will endure as long as he is faithful. But there's a difference between the covenant that God makes with Jeroboam and a covenant that God makes with David. And this is the teaching point here. Notice what he says. And you can see this hint of it. He says that he's going to afflict the offspring of David in verse 39, but not forever. Not forever. But listen to what he says as as he opens up in verse 38. If, man, that's a big if, if you will listen. If you'll listen, if you'll obey, if you'll be faithful, if you'll uphold the law, if you'll do all the right things, if you'll give me your heart, if you will worship me, then I will make you a house. But compare that with the covenant that he makes with David and see if you can pick out the difference. From the time that I appointed the judges over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son when he commits iniquity. I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever. Be made sure. You're not going to earn it sure. It's going to be made sure. I will establish this house. I will establish this king. I will establish this dynasty. I will establish the throne of David and it will be made sure forever by me. That's very different than what he says to Jeroboam. The Jeroboam, he says, if you will, if you will, But to David, he says, I will, I will. And church, family, that, that is key for us to understand. If there is any dependence upon us for our relationship with God, we will lose it. That's why our salvation has to be by grace. If I have to keep myself saved, I'll be saved about 30 seconds. Maybe not even that long. I don't know that I've loved the Lord my God with all of my heart, mind, soul, and strength for five consecutive seconds in my whole life. If it's dependent upon me, I have no chance. 
the only chance that the people of God have to enjoy the fellowship of God and a covenant with God is if God does all the work. If it is sustained only by God's grace. And that is what we see with David. Jeroboam's house is going to be built out of straw and sticks. But God establishes a throne for David that is made out of bricks. So when the big bad wolf comes and he huffs and he puffs and he tries to blow that house down, that house will stand forever. That is the covenant that we have in Christ, church. That is the sure ground that your feet are planted on when they are planted upon the cross. That you have been saved by grace through faith and not by works. So that you cannot be lost because it isn't dependent upon you from the start. It is the plan of God. It is the will of God. It is the grace of God. How? By his grace. But if you don't think your decisions matter... You haven't listened to Rehoboam nearly closely enough. Rehoboam suffers at the hands of his decisions. But so yes, God is sustaining his people by his grace. Oh, oh. But unwise living, living by hubris and not by humility, it will bring a fall in your life. Which brings us to the last tense relationship, these two fast friends. These two fast friends. So I've tried to stay all morning keeping you in limbo in this tension of why did the kingdom, why, why did Rehoboam lose the kingdom? Because of the decisions that he made. And why did Rehoboam lose the kingdom? Because of the plan and will and, desi- and decree of God. Why is it that, that the, the kingdom gets stripped away? Be- because of the decisions of, of unfaithful men to make unfaithful decisions and to be foolish and to be filled with hubris. And why does that happen? Because God said it was going to happen and God planned for it to happen and God intended for it to happen. So how do we make sense of that? How do we reconcile that? That, The the question, the real question, and y'all, we're going to ask hard questions here at Iron City. Going forward, we're we're not going to dodge them because they're they're scary. We're not going to dodge them because they're hard. We're going to ask hard questions. The hard question is, is, did Rehoboam have free will or not? Do we have free will or not? I think probably a better question is, what is free will? What does that mean? Do we mean by that that... We have some libertarian concept of that we can choose neutrally between a whole bunch of options and just pick and choose as we desire? Or do we mean, and I, th- I think this is really getting at it, and I think this is one of the main things that's being taught here in 1 Kings chapter 12, is it that we have the ability always to choose what we most desire? I think so. And that, that's what Jonathan Edwards put forward in his, his famous book, is that free will ultimately is the ability to always do that which you most desire to do, that which you always want to do. The question then becomes, how do we, desire, how do we come to desire the things that we desire? How do we come to choose the things that we choose, not because we're forced robotically or fatalistically, but because of what we want? What we hunger for, what we long for, what we love, what we're interested in. Look at what it says in verse 15. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord. That is, I think what it's saying is that the Lord had been working in all of the circumstances God, the Lord had been working in Rehoboam's heart and in Jeroboam's heart. Why is it that Rehoboam chose the foolish wisdom of the kids? Because that's what he wanted to do. That's what he wanted to do. He did what he wanted to do. And why does Jeroboam represent the rest of Israel and the tribe of Ephraim? Because they wanted him to and he wanted to. Both people in this, throughout this narrative, everybody involved is doing exactly what they wanted to do. 
but it was evil. So did God plan evil? No, no. What did God have to do to Jeroboam, or Rehoboam, to make him make the decision that he made? He just had to not intervene, right? What did God have to do to harden Pharaoh's heart all the way back in Exodus? He just had to refuse, he just had to not intervene to soften it. Pharaoh wanted to harden his heart. Rehoboam wanted to to lead with an iron fist. He wanted to, this was what he desired. This is what he hungered for. This was what was in him. Sometimes in providence, God intervenes and he restrains the evil that is there. But he's not compelled to do that. And sometimes he allows men just to ultimately do what they want to do and go where they want to go and be who they want to be. But in every one of those cases, those things are working out according to the sovereign plan of God so that in the end, his son will be elevated, so that his church will be saved, so that his will will be carried forth, and so ultimately his name will be glorified, that God is at work in the places that we're born and in the people that we meet and in the churches that we're raising and in the classmates that we have and in the experiences that we experience and in the kids that come into our family and the parents that we have, all of which are things we have no control over, all of which affect the things that we love and the things that we desire. In other words, they are turns of affairs that are brought about by the Lord that affect the things that we most want in the world. But my goodness, wouldn't we really want it. We make the decision, don't we? We make the decision because it's the real decision that we want to make. Charles Spurgeon was asked one time, how is it that he would try to reconcile the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man? And he responded in a way that only Charles Spurgeon can. He said, I wouldn't try to reconcile them. I never try to reconcile friends. Now what we see throughout the scriptures is that we make decisions and those decisions have true impact. If you have the opportunity to choose Christ, you better choose Christ. If you have the, the, the decision between foolishness and wisdom, you better choose wisdom because there are ramifications and consequences if you don't. We see that in Rehoboam. But what we can be certain is that the will of the Lord will not fail. The will of the Lord cannot be thwarted and it cannot be stopped. So you're responsible. You better choose wisely. Oh, but church, God is sovereign. You ought to sleep well. Let's pray to the Lord together. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.